Sidewalks is an annual pop-up storytelling ideas and literature festival run by the Centre for Stories. On 9th of October 2021, the third iteration of Sidewalks took over Perth and Northbridge with a curated whirlwind of talks, performances and readings. Special thanks to the sponsors that made Sidewalks possible in 2021. The Department of Local Government, Sport and Cultural Industries, Centre for Stories Founder Circle, Rainer Real Estate and Aspen Corporate Financial Planning. Thanks also to our in-kind venue partner for the Northbridge block, North Metropolitan TAFE. This is a recording from The Jury Is Still Out, a conversation with memoir writers Francesca Walker, Sunili Govinagay and Costa Lucas, facilitated by Daily Rangi. They discuss the craft, the practice and the responsibilities of memoir writing. Welcome to Nostalgia Box for our um, finale, well not quite the finale, but the end of um, the Northbridge block. I've just got news that we are the best. We've won the competition today. It's come through on, on the count back, but um, we've been successful in being the, the greatest block of sidewalks, even though there's only two. The Jury is Still Out is a conversation between emerging memoir writers about quirks and challenges of writing true stories about real people Facilitating this conversation is Daly Rangi. Daly is a Maori anti anti-disciplinary artist, sharing stories in many forms from poetry to plays to performance to painting and beyond. Daly is inspired by ancestry and fueled by injustice. Daly, over to you. Thank you. Hello, Kaya, Kiora. Um, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge that we're meeting here near Borlu, uh, just north of Yandalup Binja, the swamps under us, holding us up, providing a way of life here on Wajuk Noongar Budja. I invite all of us to continue paying our deepest and most sincere respects to all elders, Noongar Budja, past and present, those all still with us in our collective court, and those now emerging to continue the thousands and thousands and thousands of years old history of this Budja Treading lightly and ensuring our respect is not just paid in verbal terms, but in actively reciprocating the care that Budja has given us all here on this beautiful day in early Kambarang, where new life begins to flourish. Tēnā koutou katoa, kou taranaki te manga, kou waitara te awa, kou tokumaru te waka, kou te ateawa te iwi, kou delirangi toko ingoa. I'm delirangi. And joining me here for the jury is still out, hopefully a wonderful little conversation, is uh, Costa Lucas, um, also my pronouns are they, them, uh, pronouns he, him, uh, Francesca Walker, she, her, and Sunili Govanage. close enough, sorry, I should have checked that one, uh, they, them. Um, Costa is a researcher, practitioner, and writer in the field of extremism, polarization, and community resilience in Australia and abroad. Francesca is a writer and storyteller. Uh, born and raised in Aotearoa, New, Z New Zealand, she arrived in Australia after her father had what can only be described as a midlife crisis. <laughs> I'll let that one fall. Um, and Sunili is a facilitator, trainer, writer and speaker with a passion for social justice and community building. Um, we'll start off with a bit of an easy one. If you only had 30 seconds to describe it, how would you describe why you write? Anyone want to jump in first? I'm happy to start. I am. I write so I don't like my. So I write so my brain doesn't explode with thoughts and feelings. Um, it's it's really an outlet for me to share things that I find challenging and struggling that I struggle with, and to share with other people to see if we can have shared experiences and shared um, ideas and ways to address things. Uh, I think I write because um, I started off probably journaling and so um, it's a way of emoting, I guess. Um, my partner would probably say I don't provide enough emotion in real life, so I need to put it on the page. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, it's also because of, I think, that starting point being journaling, it helps me work through things. So I kind of don't conclude um, mulling over or stop mulling over something until it's on the page, until I've reached... Uh, a conclusion that I'm happy with, I think. Um, so that's probably why I write. Cool. Thank you. Um, I think just I write because 
for whatever reason at this stage in my life, like I'm quite new to the writing thing in, in some ways. Um, but now I've actually since getting to know the Center for Stories particularly, I feel like it's the only way I can exist. Like that's the only part of me I can externalize and feel like will have any sort of legacy or permanence outside of my everyday life. So it's just where it all ends up, I guess. I, I write because I have to. Is there an urge for the three of you I'll jump back in. Um, <laughs> is there an urge for any of you to kind of, is there a focus on like a specific community or group that you write for? Is it yourself? Kind of the same question, only 30 seconds. But <laughs> who is it that you write for or you think you write for or who do you want to write for? I need to think about that one. Okay, I'll take one for the team. Um, who do I write for? I think probably my main audience would be my family. Um, so I do mainly write memoir. Uh, and, yeah, a, a lot of my work is about unpacking a lot of the intergenerational trauma that as Māori and Pākehā, so Indigenous New Zealanders and uh, New Zealand Europeans is my um, cultural background, and that we have inherited um, from our ancestors, from our you know grandparents, great-grandparents, so it's about unpacking that. And so really, to some extent, although it's a question I do mull over, like, is it enough to just write for my family and have my family read it? Um, that next step of having it published, um, I think that's an interesting question. But in terms of answering your question, of who do I write for? It would be my family. All right. Um, I would say I write... Uh, I don't write for these people, like, as... Intentionally, it's more that I have my friends in my mind when I'm writing quite a lot of the time. And it's because I feel like it's a pretty wide group of people in that it's, it's a very diverse. I have friends, thankfully, that are a very diverse bunch. Some who have more privilege and like opportunity than others. Others who have had experiences that we could all seek to learn from. So I always think of how can I be the bridge between all of those experiences and create that sort of space for all those things to exist together. So I'd say my friends are always the people I'm thinking of. And I mean friends actually in the broader sense of the word where it's not just even the people I love, but also the people I don't particularly know that I could potentially intersect with one day. Um, yeah, friends. Um, then one thing I was reflecting on as well is um, we're, we're constantly, we, when we were chatting earlier, we were talking about how, how soon will we get to racism and colonisation, and I'd like to, I'd like to <laughs> submit myself to suggesting um, when we think about what writing is as well, that, that there is a, a particular um, privilege that is attached to writing and to writing in English. And um, the other thing that always struck me after I did a program with Sasanke and Sukjit at Centre for Stories was storytelling and, and oral storytelling and story sharing um, is just as powerful as, as published writing. And, and for me, um, as much as I will, I haven't written, written in a long time because I feel I, I, there was a lot of anxiety and, and stress about stuff, but, but so much of it is as well just sharing stories with people in my community, with, with people I, I work with or work around with, um, that, that has really been a, motiv a motivating factor to me. Have you found that kind of previously working within human rights law that storytelling can be a really powerful kind of method of connection? Oh, absolutely. And um, a woman in the room who um, sort of, um, who is also a, a former lawyer with a kindred spirit, but um, something that really struck me when I was um, working to assist asylum seekers who were applying for temporary protection visas is that um, all of human rights is storytelling um, and, and storytelling and truth-telling and, and sharing about experiences and what's happening and I'm sure cost it in terms of the terrorism stuff as well um, because within the, the bureaucratic system of, of the visa application process the, the government have demanded people to share their trauma and explain why they fit within certain boxes and um, and that was um, my role was one of, of great privilege and honour in terms of essentially being an interpreter um, to, to help people put their stories, and we also had translators as well, um, to put their stories within a certain structure that needed to be told. 
Costa, have you found in your dual, and you can explain what each of them is, podcasts, yeah. that this comes into play as well? It becomes a kind of freeing space for people to really get to some kind of truth, whether that truth is quite devastating or joyful or somewhere in between? Yeah, um, interesting question, actually. So uh, two podcasts he's referring to is my own personal one, which is around, it's called This is Sparta, which is a, my, my, it's funny because my parents grew up near that area in Greece and I look at the, the sort of the Spartan in popular culture and just think that's such a crock. Like they're literally <laughs> down the road, like <laughs> in, from where I'm from. And it's like, it's nothing, you know. So I just, it's for me, because it represents a lot of things I have a problem with in popular culture. So I've just tried to reclaim it in some ways. And that was actually about my gastric sleeve surgery that I had six years ago. Like, cause I'd, I'd been a pretty profoundly overweight person for most of my life. And I un underwent the decision to have surgery, um, like to make a drastic change to my life. And it did change my life for the better significantly, but it also changed it in a way I never ever could have expected. Um, and then I have another podcast at the moment um, called Undesign, which is a reference to my place of work called Draw History, which is a branding and design firm uh, for social impact and for non-for-profits. Um, it's a new expression of that work where we talk to people doing the work in different parts of the world trying to solve a wicked problem. So that's more conversation-based. My one is more introspective. Um, and one of our projects with Draw History is actually, I mean, I can't wait to launch this. It's not out yet. But we've co-designed a storytelling, uh, digital storytelling platform for survivors of terrorism from Australia and New Zealand to tell their stories and for a place for all of those stories to live together. and. It was through working through that project that I actually appreciated and felt the need to tell my own story. And I think that was for me to get rid of uh, the what we call like the researcher's gaze in, in a lot of social social sciences where, you know, you study these things for so long and then you forget that the people you're trying to understand are just people and not things to just sort of understand. And they're actually other people and your community to connect with and for me it was just an act of trying to humble myself by also being vulnerable and because I was so inspired by their bravery and their generosity with their stories um, that having worked with them I was just like well like what skin in the game do I have like I'm we're expecting other people to disclose their trauma and to for us to learn from it like I'm gonna step up to the challenge and do that too. And so through the method of podcasting was one way to do it. And then with Undesign, our actual podcast with work where we're talking to people around the world for all sorts of, you know, whether they're big companies like Google or Wikipedia or, you know, self-starters like Indigenous X, like a, you know, exclusively Indigenous uh, media platform. Um, you know, we always give our guests the, the chance to take the conversation where they wanna go um, but yeah, for some of our guests that are in some of those more powerful places, we'll try and take on a voice where we, um, I'd say compassionately, but, you know, thoughtfully critique and get them to reflect on their place in a bigger system like that too. So I see it as a way to democratize public knowledge in some way, like in some small way with our, with our audiences. So yeah, it's been a weird exercise in placing myself in as both like memoir person myself, helping other people tell their stories for our benefit and hopefully, you know, most of all theirs, I would hope. And then um, unpacking the stories that underlie all the wicked problems that these institutions are trying to, or say that they're trying to, to address. So yeah, it's, that all started here, really, being, being able to see those different shades of those same, um, storytelling kind of uh, mechanisms. What about in a historical sense, having worked as a historian for a period, how do you find contested histories popping out in regards to real stories, real people, yeah. real uh, history, maybe? Yeah, yeah real history. Um, interesting question. So in my background, my first sort of real job out of university was as a historian with the Waitangi Tribunal, which is... Um, uh, inquiry, I guess a commission of inquiry in, in New Zealand which looks into claims of breaches of the Treaty of Waitangi um, and so the Treaty of Waitangi is the founding document of New Zealand signed between the iwi or Māori and um, the Crown 
Um, the Crown is now represented by the government of New Zealand. And so we have, um, in terms of storytelling being a, a way of uh, providing some, some, I guess, healing um, and reconciliation, in that context, as though it's a very odd setup because it's, it's half history and half law because you've got – it's essentially a tribunal headed by a judge, um, but you've got – the claims can go back to 1840, uh, although I believe some of the inquiries have even gone beyond that, uh, before that. Uh, and so – but it's one of the first times that um, Māori claimants have the opportunity to stand up in, a, in an environment that they feel comfortable because quite often hearings are held on marae, so in traditional areas um, where – Māori live and and uh, are part of the community, and they are able to actually provide a, a history and an, a story to representatives from the Crown um, of their experience of colonisation and their histories, and so that element is very um, I think powerful for the the claimants that participate. Um, it's then I guess the role of the historians to take the oral histories, and there's also a lot of um, archival. Uh, information that feeds into it, and um, write a report to the Crown about um, about the, whether or not claims are valid and how make recommendations about how they can be uh, resolved. So, in New Zealand, you do have um, uh, yeah, you have the treaty settlements. Um, so there is a lot of money that is actually paid as. Um, uh, as recognition of, of and it never matches what um, the loss of land, culture, um, all of those things that go into to obviously New Zealand's history. Um, but it is a process and it can be really powerful, especially for uh, Māori elders to stand up. And, sp- and you can also provide evidence in, sorry, Te Reo Māori. So you, it, it's translated um, simultaneously in hearings. Um, and just having that power in that space, um, yeah, it can really revolutionise um, people's, I think, experience to be heard um, and to be heard by those in power um, is incredibly powerful. Um, and also in that process, it's part of the, I guess, the reconciliation that New Zealand is hopefully going on. Um, obviously, it's a bit of an ebb and flow and tide. Um, but yeah, and, and, it's a, and it's an interesting space to work in because... Like law, I mean, you'd probably be able to talk about this a bit more, but from my experience, law tends to only uh, identify one truth, like it has to come to a conclusion, whereas history is that there is no truth. (laughs) It's all versions of truth. Um, And so to try and bring those two disciplines together and to to solve a lot of the mamai or the hurt in New Zealand... um, can be quite difficult, but it's a really fascinating conversation that happens in, in an awesome place to work as your sort of first real job out of university um, and showed the power of storytelling and also gave me a, a real appreciation of um, that, you know, there's versions of truth. I don't think there's ever one truth um, and that's quite powerful when you're writing about writing memoir as well because personally I think you can sort of only claim your truth um, and hope that your reader will appreciate that it's your truth as well, um, rather than, yeah, the truth. Any comments on law and history there? Um, it, it was... That, um, I think it's... <laughs> fascinating. Um, it was fascinating you mentioned um, sort of the, the interconnection between law and history, and I think there's a, a particular historical reason why... The legal system that, that we are under um, has so many challenges because it sort of requires one person to be the arbiter of what is and isn't the truth. And um, it was just ref- it occurred to me that um, as well as storytelling and sort of um, any um, written statement, um, witnesses, you know, who are telling a story of what they saw on the stand and, and this is potentially why legal dramas are so compelling to all of us and um, and, and so popular. Um, you know, thinking about from To Kill a Mockingbird to John Grisham, it's about there's a, there's a narrative there and there's a story there in terms of um, a, the perspectives of, of players and, and the cast members around a particular issue um, and 
and an, and an advocate, a barrister, would be when they're preparing a case, they would be planning in terms of the beginning, the middle, and the end of, of this story um, as part of the as part of the the court case. Um, and I think it's a huge challenge that the legal system that we have sort of requires that there to be only only one truth and therefore people fight over it as opposed to potentially coming together in, in a safe space to be able to share individual truths and potentially discover that there are lots of perspectives and, and potentially lots of ways forward. But yeah, This one's a bit more open and feel free to jump into each other's stories as well. Um, but in pulling, pulling it back to yourself and your own stories and writing about yourself, if you do do that, do you find, what, what are the big kind of challenges and struggles or the joys, you know, the successes? Is there kind of, you know, family and ancestry hanging over you as you try to find your truth? <laughs> Who's going to take that one? All right, I guess, okay, I, I look ready. Um, <laughs> um, I don't know. Maybe a bit of privilege speaking, but um, I don't think. I, I guess I'm not con uh, crushingly conscious of some of those factors uh, when I talk about my experience. Um, that said, because it's a very specific experience and particular to me, where I'm just like I'm really inspired. Oh, I'm going to sound like such a wanker, but um, <laughs> I'm I'm really inspired by Michel de Montaigne, like the philosopher who's unfortunately got the nickname like the patron saint of bloggers and I hate that nickname but the thing is it's what he's really good at is just describing the internal experience of everything that he has encountered like in when he was alive and his first big experience that made him able to do that was a near-death experience after being thrown off a horse and the way he writes about sort of what his body was doing and what his sort of his um, internal world was doing and the disconnect between those things kind of started off a, a, a career in that sort of philosophical musing that's very in, internal. So for me, I'm much more conscious of like, how can I really describe, like do the description justice? And on, the, on this whole thing of truth as well, I think, um, you know, the most we can really do is write some sort of facsimile of what was true for us in any given moment and then see what overlaps when we combine those with other stories as well so there's like the individual stories and what was true for us in any particular moment and then seeing where those things meet and and what story that tells so i think the interplay of stories is also important as well as the actual discipline of writing our own stories and situating ourselves within a particular thing um, i guess one thing i have learned is that and maybe this is more to your question directly is that very few stories or at least experiences are exclusively like one person's like if narrative is a social kind of if if narratives are like informed by social meanings and cultural meanings and stuff like that that implies that we've had to rely on other people to create these things for us to use first so you know even my experiences with other people even if i feel like the main character of that experience i'm like actually it's not true i'm just one person in this so you know, how do I write about that in a way that um, feels right about how I experienced it, but also gives, is fair to whoever else is in that interaction. So that's probably where it comes into it for me in, in that sense. Yeah. You can go if you've got So my family are here and they were laughing because they know that, yes, there, there is an issue for us, I think. Um, so, it's, and this is coming from, I don't know if I can't speak on either behalf of other groups, but um, Māoridom is obviously a collective um, structure and it traditionally was a collective um, group of people. And yet memoir, as far as I can tell, is a very eye-centred practice. Um, and it's quite difficult, especially having come from a more academic background in, in history, where there's a lot of ethics around you know, who has the right to tell Indigenous stories and um, how you go about writing Indigenous stories. So in New Zealand, there's, without getting too academic, <laughs> I know that we've, we've had, the, had the line, not to get too academic, but um, there is sort of the, the way in which um, you do Māori research and, and work in that space is 
to recognise that there's these fundamental principles in Māoridom of, you know, a collective approach and philosophy. So you need to take along everyone on the journey. And if you're doing work, it's almost from a very humble place. So how is this contributing to the collective? Um, the difficulty when you're writing memoir, and especially when you're writing about your family, intergenerational um, memoir, is that obviously you're writing about people, ancestors, with whom other people have relationships. Um, the added element, I think, in Māoridom is that, from from my understanding of non-Indigenous groups, is that people generally get, to get uh, are allowed or seem to get upset if they, you write about them. In Māoridom, you, you can get feedback that people are upset if you've written about people from three generations ago who, you know, people they have never met, you've never met, um, but... It's because um, your tipuna and his ancestors are sort of always with you and it is a very personal uh, relationship that is ongoing. And so navigating that can be tough. So um, not so much with my direct family, <laughs> the ones that are here, but more so the extended family. So if you're writing about um, great-grandparents, you know, you're, you're going to have <laughs> some feedback, <laughs> some ideas about your interpretation of events. But also, I think, and, and this is something I'm still working through, but um, writing as a sort of practice of decolonisation because sometimes those viewpoints, and I understand them, come from a feeling of shame and, you know, a lot of the stuff that colonisation has um, impacted on Indigenous people is, is you know, horizontal violence and, and impacting on our own family groups in a negative way. So if we're going to write about our family, um, you know, what is the, how might others view that? Um, and when you have been marginalised in that way, you want to protect yourselves, obviously, because the outside world may interpret you badly. Um, so I can understand that all, but also it's very difficult when you're writing and you have, you know, family members on the phone and, you know, maybe not so pleased about something that you've written and put out into the world. So, yeah, still haven't figured it out um, at all, but it is a very, yeah, contested area, I think. Yeah. I think in, in so many contexts and cultures, it is hard to be able to know what to share and where the, the, where the line is and how do you get, um, you know, the, the permission or the, um, you know, the, the buy-in of, of people to, to share confronting stories that um, are really important and meaningful and powerful, but actually there's, there's shame there or there's trauma or, or there's particular reasons why you don't want to um, actually engage in that conversation to get that permission and, and, and it's, all, I think, a, a continual journey. Um, something that has really struck me about the power of story sharing has sort of been in the last few years when there's been a lot more um, a lot more diversity and representation in sort of, you know, public and popular narratives. Um, seeing stories that I lived through being told from other perspectives really just helped validate the gaslighting that I gave, you know, gave to myself. And, and um, there was like a, a post on Twitter about one of the astronauts on the space station who was like, they're 37, but they've been in... in Marine and a doctor from Harvard, and and now they're a thing. And, and I was like, I'm 37, and I'm an employee. And um, and and the quote tweets from this was like, like don't show Nigerian parents this, and someone else being like, keep this away from like, everyone's Asian parents, and because that was just a high, you know, this high achieving kid who like has, um, and and I was like, yes, the the sort of expectational trauma of, of migrant narratives um, is actually so cross cultural, um, whereas. When I was suffering through all of those issues, just feeling like I could never be good enough, um, a whole lot of people were doing it the same and, and, and feeling the same feelings and also feeling wrong. Um, but all of a sudden you realise that, yes, it's a, it's a really common experience and it's not just you. Um, and, and I think you might have something else to, that you're going to add. But Oh, yeah, that's <laughs> um, and, and it was something that I was reflecting on as we were preparing for this, but it really occurred to me that sort of the Me Too movement was built on memoirs, mm. even if it was just literally that hashtag. Um, and it was, it was people saying, I have had this experience and putting it out there 
real, you know, real people, real stories, um, that brought all of this change because it wasn't just data or research or um, policies. It was real people who who were telling their truth. So is there an argument perhaps for memoir as activism in a way? Because I suppose the, the word itself can feel quite dry and inaccessible to folks, you know? So have, have you had experiences with kind of memoir? I mean, you've just highlighted one there, but any specific experiences in your own lives or within the own, own communities? Are there some really interesting people that you'd be willing to tell us about who've kind of harnessed the idea of telling stories as activism? to jump in with that one, just considering the work I've done with such amazing people who have survived terrorist attacks. Um, I think um, I just actually, I, I kind of just want to come, like come uh, continue just the, the thread that we left off there around sort of um, like ownership of stories, right? And one surprising thing I learned with um, working with survivors of terrorism is that even in their situation where you want to create this platform for them to say what was true for them, um, you still have to be mindful of what it is they're sharing as well. And as someone's kind of supervising that project and helping them develop their concepts that we then put into video or a photo essay or whatever it is, you know, I've had to have a couple of conversations with a few of them being like, look, I think because this is a government-sponsored program that we're doing this for, it's, I'm like, are you sure you want the government to own that particular part of your story. Um, so an example of that was, um, so Alpha Cheng, who you might know of, his father was murdered in Parramatta in 2015 by a radicalized young man. And, you know, Alpha's just like the epitome of stoicism. And, um, you know, he said to me, you know, and he's done the media rounds, he's done all this stuff he's written. And he said to me that, you know, the one thing I haven't been able to do is actually celebrate what type of man my father is. So this is when we were developing what concept he wanted to sort of um, share as part of this project. And I was like, oh, that sounds beautiful. Like he wants to do a, like a spoken word piece. And then I thought about it because um, we were kind of tossing up options. And I went back to him and I said, Alpha, look, given how intensely personal that is, I feel ethically sort of responsible just to say to you, if you do this through this program, you might lose some degree of control over that. This is something that I think you should own completely and exclusively. How about we do this other thing that we did instead? And he said, yeah, actually, that makes a lot more sense. Um, another example quickly is just with um, the Ibrahim family. So the Ibrahim family, most of who actually live in WA at the moment, uh, just the most incredible family. Um, they lost their three-year-old brother in the Christchurch t uh, mosque attacks in 2019. And, um, and again, they were so enthusiastic about seizing a platform to tell what it was like to lose someone like that, but also to see media talk about um, the terrorist attack, the perpetrator, all these sorts of things. So we did a video essentially like a reaction video to the headlines that were coming out at the time that they selected. And, you know, the two sisters, um, you know, they were sharing some of their thoughts. And again, sharing some intensely personal stuff um, around, um, uh, I guess, young Mukad who, who, who lost, his, who, who was killed, who was three years old, um, about his mother's reaction to everything, just because I, I, I won't repeat the story. But again, I had to say to them, like, look, because we're talking about his mother's reaction and she's not here to, even though this is your little brother that you lost, and we're talking about his mum's reaction to, to this, you know, how do we feel about not including that in the final cut? Because she's not there to actually um, explore that herself or to, to, to say anything. Because it wasn't unflattering, it was just very personal. And it was just like, that is such an intense thing to hear that someone has been through. So again, I think ethics is a really huge part and whether it's trying to, as much as you can, write with people and bring them on that journey or just being someone that is like, hey, before you put that out there, let's think about like, who, who is, who, who's the right custodian for this experience and this story 
Um, so that's just something I wanted to share. And that's been some of the most surprising learnings working with people who have been through such horrific events and have come out the other end just more generous and more pro-social than ever. So I think as a form of activism, this whole project is saying survivors of terrorism have a lot of agency and a lot, of, um, a lot to teach us that we're not seizing upon except at memorials like once a year, you know. They, their experiences should inform policy, they should inform um, broader attitudes towards forgive, um, forgiveness or slash, you know, moving through trauma, depending on your preference. All these sorts of things, all these discussions you don't hear about through that lens, I think hopefully form uh, are a gentler form of activism in that we're inviting people into that space to understand it for themselves. So. I would say, yeah, that's probably my biggest example of that. Yeah. Um, something that I've spent a lot and a lot of, and I cannot stress enough, a lot of time thinking about um, is the, the the white gaze in, in activism and hu the human rights space. Um, and, and Costa, you might have something to do with from, if it's coming from a government institution, it's even more different. Um, but from, from, you know, the, the campaigns that are... Um, you know, the, the most obvious I'm thinking about is the World Vision campaigns to try and you know, feed charity you know, for charity and live aid and stuff. And it's all here's here's pictures and stories of suffering and trauma, and well, you should be you should feel compelled to therefore donate. Um, versus a lot I saw around um, the refugee rights space um, involving asking people to relive their trauma in order to make a political point. Um, and, and it's something that I think is, is really challenging um, because, and I, and I can speak to it from the perspective of, of sexual violence as well, that the, and I won't speak too much of it, but um, there's often, for me personally, it's felt like if there is advocacy involved in this space, it's required survivors to share their trauma, to prove that something has happened, um, similar to a legal system as well. Um, and I think it, it's a real challenge that that the sort of progressive communities need to really reckon with in, in terms of what labour, both emotionally um, and, and actually they are doing labour by telling their story, um, is required of people in order for an outcome to be achieved and, and to go through a particular process. There was a great quote, I hope you don't mind me repeating, I think it's in your bio in the program, about kind of working, I, I, activism not always being about winning an argument, um, but rather about people being offered basic human rights, essentially, and that kind of push and pull between, you know, I suppose, art and a somewhat progressive, or idea of a progressive space and what's actually on the ground happening with humanity. Um, I think it was part of the discussions that we were having in the lead up, but um, there was you know, there was all this. It was it was a debate about people and about people's human rights, and and so that you know there was it was like going back to high school debating again, and there was a affirmative and negative team um, who are having an argument about an issue while those people are not part of that conversation, and I found that really challenging um, to be in that space and. and constantly questioning it and then constantly being told to go do my job. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's something that I find really particularly challenging in that it's always the people who have the best intentions and then when you then do go and offer that feedback, then the fragility comes out and it becomes a really dangerous and toxic situation. No, you're all good. <laughs> I suppose you've already spoken to this a lot, really, but I suppose what are those really hard lessons that you've learnt or the, you know, those ideas that you've held that you've had to change when you've been working with real stories and real people? I suppose what's the kind of takeaway that you'd offer people, the advice? I mean, the first thing obviously is to listen, but is there more than that or is it just to listen? I, I can jump in for a bit. Um, it's interesting because I, I don't work with other people um, like Costa and Suneli. Um, it's, it's purely from my own family. Um, and I think the difficulty in writing about your family history is the silences. So it's actually very difficult to listen to silence. Um, and I've been very lucky, I guess, because I have a history background 
and just given who my ancestors were and the waves they seemed to make through the world, um, it meant that there was a lot of archival um, stuff available for me to go back and have a look at. What is actually really interesting is that a lot of the archival stuff that's available is not things that have ever been discussed in my family. Um, and that's where a lot of, I think, the pain and the conflict comes up um, in, in my family because, um, A, whether it wasn't known by the current generations or whether it, um, you know, was actively suppressed. Um, so that's an interesting dynamic. I think... Again, it's an evolving space for me, given that it's, um, you know, stuff that's going on currently. But um, I think it is, uh, for me, I think one of the things that I've had to learn about writing memoir is to actually own my own story um, and be unapologetic that this is my experience about it. Because, especially when you're writing about your family, um, there are, you know, a cast of, you know, dozens or if you're going back ancestrally a cast of thousands who will spiritually hit you over the head um if you you go you know on a on a path that you don't want to go um or they don't want you to go rather and so you have to just purely be like okay what is my truth and am I doing it for the right reasons I think D doing it humbly and um uh, for the yeah for 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 me personally doing it so that it can create a better future for uh, the generations to come after us so they hopefully don't have the same baggage that we inherited from, yeah, our family. I think for me, one of the lessons, and I don't think I've, I've got an answer specifically, but something that I've definitely picked up is um, is, is constantly reflecting on whose who's story is it and who gets to tell it. And, and you might, um, Costa, have something to add in terms of your government work, but... Um, there's, you know, that stupid, it drives me absolutely crazy thing about, like, being a voice for the voiceless. Well, no, like, let them speak for themselves um, and, and get out of their way or create, provide the resources for them to actually use, raise their own voice um, is, is, I think, the, the constant challenge in this space. Yeah, just to extend that point, I, I was having a conversation recently and the kind of the question or the challenge we set ourselves was, when do we step up and when do we step aside, you know, because sometimes you might be the only person in the room that can say something for, like you might literally be a voice for a voiceless in that situation. You're not always going to be that person. So, you know, yeah, when do you step up, when do you step aside? And when you're working with people and you're telling their story um, or they're trusting you with their story to help them tell it, um, you know, what's a way that you can support them beyond just a transaction? Like it, Again, we, just as an example of the program that I'm managing, it was just we wanted to offer a stipend to our survivors because, or our storytellers as we actually call them. Mm. They call themselves survivors, victims, whatever they want. They're telling us their stories and they, they are undergoing the labour of telling us. Um, however, you know, again, the conversation we had was, is this a fee for service or, or what? You know, are we just handing over, are you just paying us to? And I said, no, like this is for you to, this is our way to show you that we value the expertise, the time that you're taking to do this and hopefully the benefit that others will get from um, consuming your story. But like, this is more than just a transaction. Like no one owns it except you. Um, maybe this particular expression of that story is owned by a government. Like if we're being very like uh, sort of black letter of the law about it. So we make a decision about like what is appropriate, like what is an appropriate story to share in that sense. So, but thankfully we're in a situation where there's a ton of goodwill and a lot of transparency and um, never take that choice away from people that want to share their vulnerability. I think particularly as it relates to trauma-based uh, trauma, trauma storytelling, it's like the last thing you want to do is take agency away from people who have been through things where agency was taken from them in the most extreme way possible um, and just being really upfront about what it is what it is that you can do with them what you might not think is appropriate um, and investing in a relationship then and not just a transaction and an exchange of a story like with each of the storytellers like even beyond the life of the project I knew some of them I've met some of them for the first time and it's just 
it's an obligation, I think, and a, and a privilege actually, not an obligation. It's to be able to call them friends now and to just check in on them and see what their life is like and to talk about things outside of all these sorts of things and to just connect with them in other ways. So, yeah, actually just be really, I don't know, I'm, I'm just very all in for trying to make them um, feel supported and and to, to genuinely support them with whatever they whatever else they want to do with their story or their lives. Because there might come a point where they're like, I'm actually done telling this part of my life now. It's done. And it's like, cool. That is absolutely yeah. okay. You know, you, you need to be able to move on. Yeah. And similar experiences I've had talking to people who have left extremist groups. They come out of these groups and they have an appetite to tell people what they've learned and how they endured that experience. And then they get to a point where it's like, fuck, I just want to live a life now. You know, am I always going to... And this is their, their challenge is, am I always indebted for this terrible decision I made? Um, because I know I've hurt people. Um, you know, whether it's physically violent or whether it's more culturally and sort of, um, I guess, just... Yeah, culturally violent, I guess, is the only way I can express it. But um, there's that guilt they carry. And they're, they're trying to atone. So for them, it's like, when is enough... When, when have I atoned enough for this um, and, f you know, need to tell my story and put myself out there as this particular person that left this group? When can I reclaim some of my... Just be a fuller person again, taking with me the lessons I've learned from that experience to not do that again? So, again, just really interesting questions about when a story has its sort of s shelf life, I think. And was it Rose Batty, who I think was, um, was quite a, a big... Um, campaign or an advocate in terms of violence, um, family violence, and mm. um, then sort of realised that they had to leave the public sphere because yeah. because it was just too much. But um, there was a point you made about what I, I do have one suggestion. Mm. Um, it was the point you made about what do you do when you are the, the one in the room mm. who could speak for someone, and I think the answer there is point out that they're not in the yeah, room. That's right. And and to Big say time. how can they be brought into yeah. this process and this Agreed. space, and totally and I think agree. that's. That's probably a, a really practical thing, mm, yeah. um, rather than sort of saying, "Oh, well, I'll take this." Yeah, take of this course. On. Yeah. We're edging very close to the time that we're done, as we have our finale event happening over at the State Theatre very soon. So I was wondering, just so you leave, if you have any further comments based on what's been said today, any last little tidbits you wanted to share, or any little bits of uh, dreaming that you've got. What's the next story you want to tell? Do you have that in your kind of? I saw that big sigh, like, oh. <laughs> um, or what story do you feel still needs to be tell, told? Is there something you can advocate for right here, right now? I had one sort of thought. Um, I think all three of us, when we were invited to this, have sort of reflected on, like, I'm not a real memoir writer. Like, what is this? Um, and, and something that has been really valuable through this conversation and the conversations we had before was sort of reflecting on the idea of what is sort of the, the academic or the, the marketable definition of, is, is, you know, we sort of think about like Hollywood actors going and getting ghost-written memoirs versus, um, you know, things like David Sedaris who just talks about his family and those sorts of incredible little stories, um, that that there, there is a chance to sort of think, re, reframe and reimagine what memoir can be the potential of it um, outside of whatever consumable um, definitions that we have. I think that was something I thought was really interesting based on our collective um, imposter syndromes, I suppose. But yeah. Um, I guess personally, um, I'm doing a full rewrite of This Is Sparta because I threw it out there. Um, on just kind of impulse almost. And I was like, I've got to just do something because I've got this burning desire to do it. I did it. Um, it exists out there just in, in its small form. And, you know, it's been an amazing conversation starter with people in my life that are current and people I haven't spoken to for a long time that reached out and told me they listened to it and was like, wow, I didn't know you were going through that at that time. This is what I thought was happening. And I was just like, that's actually the most amazing thing for me to hear. Um, so I've kind of been umming and ahhing about it. And thankfully, with social media-based storytelling, you can change things all the time, especially <laughs> if you don't have an established following like me. So like, no one knows. It's great. Um, but I've got a full-blown rewrite happening again where I'm probably going to write it more chapter-based kind of audiobook 
kind of style, which deals with a particular challenge. Uh, like it starts with the weight loss surgery stuff, but really I'm writing it because as a man in a, in a post-industrial, whatever, like democratic society, whatever we want to call it, um, I just think there are stories that, are, like there are challenges I've had that I know others have had that I just don't see out there and I just kind of want to put something out there in the hope that other people will recognise parts of it um, and be genuinely vulnerable. Like I'm setting the chance, uh, the challenge for myself. Again, something I learned from Centre for Stories, we tell the stories out of our scars, not our wounds, you know, so I'm not going to force any of those uh, scars open but generally work towards and set the challenge of being more and more um, expositional or like, you know, just revealing of myself. So start with the weight loss surgery because that's like the uh, the low-hanging fruit. I've already got the other sort of parts planned. So I'm curious to just see how that goes. And um, yeah, so that's just a personal challenge. And I've got a manuscript I'm supposed to write for a book on terrorism in Australia. And I don't know, <laughs> I don't know how that's going to work out right now. Again, it's just finding the angle that I feel the most comfortable with. Um, and I'm kind of edged closer to that too. So for me, I would like to tell a story about that. Um, again, that allows someone to put themselves in that situation rather than tell them, here's what the research says, here's this. Like, there's a place for that, but not in, not, that's not the domain I want to take up. So trying to find that balance between something that's well-researched and thoughtful and also just very human. Those are just some of my personal writing challenges, I think. There we go. Um, yeah, and I think mine would be finally finishing this memoir about my family. Um, it's been kicking around for a while and just, yeah, navigating it to a point where I'm happy with it and I piss off the fewest amount of people possible in my family, I think is the, where I've got to get to. Um, yeah, because as, as I said earlier, like for me, chapters in my life don't conclude until I've actually finished a piece and so yeah I'm really sick of my ancestors just sitting on my shoulders at the moment so I'd love it if I could just get this done and dusted into bed um, and yeah whether or not that's published it doesn't really bother me <laughs> I just want to get it done um, and yeah so that's what's on the cards for me next I think. Wonderful um, we've hit the end of this lovely little the jury is still out hopefully you've enjoyed today hopefully you found some truth within yourself maybe have an urge to go lift up your communities. Um, I know that the first event down in the city block today was uh, some bilingual poetry based on Maya Angelou's Still I Rise. So I thought I'd just give you a little tiny sentence from that to take with you. Just like moons and like suns with the certainty of tides, just like hopes springing high, still I'll rise. Lift each other up with your and our collective stories and hopefully you leave here a little bit higher within yourself. Risen. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much to Sunili, to Francesca, and to Costa, and I'm Daily Rungi. Fantastic. I just want to thank all you guys again. I mean, that was really amazing. Some of those stories and, and just the way you all spoke, it's uh, so cathartic. I mean, the stuff that's coming out and, and that healing, soothing, and just that... Um, real hope of getting those stories told and the, and the narratives right and the ancestral part as well so i thank you very much for thanks for listening today. to listen to more stories and conversations or to make a donation to the center for stories head to centerforstories.com